Well, hey guys, good morning. Um, happy to be with you virtually today. Yeah, I'm preaching through video today rather than in person on the stage. In case you can't tell by my very white sound and voice, I'm a little under the weather. I tested positive for COVID. Uh, the good news is uh, it's been really mild. I'm doing really well. Uh, just obviously have this sound going on, and I thought because of all this, of course, that it wouldn't be wise for me to be in person today. So I came into my office without touching door handles and stuff. I've got key card, elbow buttons to open doors, and uh, came in without touching stuff, came straight to my office, and I'm going to leave straight back out when I'm done. Um, and so you don't have to worry about any of that. Uh but I do also want to speak to another thought that might be in your mind right now, which could be, oh man, well, if I would have known that the sermon was going to be in video today and not in person, then I would have stayed at home. And one thing that I've heard a lot of people say with the onset of, of a lot of online church and video services and everything like that, they talk about coming back because at home isn't the same, talking about the experience. And... And that's true. Um, online can never replace in person. It's not meant to. It shouldn't. Um, but the reason that we didn't say, hey, uh, let's cancel in-person service because Pastor Stephen can't be there to preach um, and let's go online only. Uh, I, if we did that, uh, according to me not being able to be present, elevates the sermon as the only thing that matters um, and discredits or discounts the importance of the kids' ministry that's happening in the kids' wing and in the Emerge class um, discredits the importance of, of all the one another's that Scripture commands us, uh, commands us to obey, like love one another, encourage one another, pray for one another, serve one another. Our ability to see each other face-to-face and say, hey, how are you going? I heard about XYZ. Uh, can I pray for you? Can I check on you? How's your life? Uh, those types of things that happen on Sunday morning that are so important as well. There's so many things that go into a Sunday gathering that are important beyond the sermon alone. And so I don't want to discredit those things. And um, the reason that we thought we could continue to do everything else and then just play the sermon video is because I want to keep chipping away at the idea um, that Sunday morning is a worship experience. That's a common term that you hear nowadays uh, from a lot of churches when they talk about their Sunday services or whatever you might want to call them. I prefer to call them gatherings because I think um, if, if you were to stay home just because of the idea that it won't be as good because the pastor's not in person, reinforces the idea that Sunday morning is a worship experience rather than a gathering of the family of God to worship together, to get into the word together, and practice all the one another's of encourage one another, greet one another, pray for one or one another, um, and and really uh, talk life and how are you doing? How are things going? Check in with each other. And so there is so much more to what happens on Sunday in the gathering than, than just the sermon or just the musical worship. And so uh, I want to keep chipping away at the idea that it's just this experience. And even the idea that, oh man, you know, worship didn't hit the spot today. The band, you know, last week it was like this and this week, you know, whether or not songs are played that we like or the band really hits it right that week or whatever it might be, none of those things change the God who is worthy of our worship no matter what. All that to say, the reason uh, that we didn't cancel today or whatever is because there's very important things that happen in person still, 
even if I can't be in person to preach. And then finally, this leads to the next point. Well, why didn't you have one of the other pastors preach? Well, Gino was already scheduled to be out of town this weekend, and Spencer just started up the Emerge. And then beyond that, this is the one sermon in the entire calendar year for the year of the Bible that I'm more excited to preach than any, partly because I did a final paper in college on Genesis 22. And so I've been looking at the calendar, licking my chops, getting excited for this week because there's some really profound things in Genesis 22 that I'm excited to uh, open up and, and teach you guys this morning. So having said all of that, let's pray and get into the word. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for an opportunity to gather as your family, to enter into your word, to discuss you and the truth that you have revealed about yourself in your word. I ask by your Holy Spirit today that you would open our eyes to see the truth Um, to believe the truth and walk in light of it, and that you would change us, um, and that we would walk out living differently based on the truth that we have found in you from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. What is the purpose of a test? All of us have experienced many different kinds of tests in our lives, trying to measure or judge many different things, um, Tests, ultimately, though, are meant to do one thing. Tests are meant to prove. I've taken tests in my life to attempt to prove that I possess certain knowledge. I've taken tests to prove that I possess certain skills, that I can achieve and accomplish certain things. I've taken tests in my life to prove the presence of certain viruses. I've taken tests in my life, as you have, for many different things. But ultimately, even though they're all trying to find different things, they're ultimately trying to prove something. And tests can prove the presence of knowledge and skills and many different things. But in the case of Genesis 22, we see a test given to Abraham to prove the fear of God. Now, we're going to examine this account of one of the more famous tests in the Bibles. And if you didn't know, there is a thread of test and testing throughout Scripture. Adam and Eve were tested in the garden. They did not pass that test. Noah was tested to see if he would obey God in spite of the most ridiculous sounding commands. Abraham, this what we're about to read in Genesis 22, is the ninth test we see accounted in chapters 12 through 25 of Abraham's life. It is the ninth test, the climax of all the testings that he had building up to this one. Some of those tests he passed, some of them he failed. Jesus was tested in the wilderness after fasting 40 days and 40 nights. Satan came and tempted him to test and prove that Jesus was who he said he was, or who scripture tells us he was, that he was going to be faithful to the Lord, that he was going to live a life without sin, that he was holy and righteous. And so Jesus passed that test. Jesus also was tested in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he would be crucified. He, he was in turmoil saying, Lord, if there's any other way we could do this, Father, if, if we could have this cup pass from me, if there's any other way, let's do it. And then he passed that test by saying, nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. And so, when Adam and Eve failed their test in the garden, Jesus passed his test in the garden. What we're going to see today, ultimately, as we evaluate Genesis 22, is the author wants us to see a few different things. One, the author wants us to see that God tests his people 
to prove their faith and his faithfulness or his faithfulness to to provide what he has promised. And then secondly, that we're going to see a, a greater connection of the meta narrative of scripture again pointing forward to the way that God would provide a sacrificial lamb, Jesus Christ, for all of our sins. Now, as we look back at what we discussed last week from Genesis 12 through 15, we saw Abraham, <clears throat> Abram at the time, who was given promises from God, and we saw that God is the promise keeper, that that God will do what he said he will do, and uh, what has happened between chapter 15 and where we are today, chapter 22, is unfortunately too much to fit into a 40-ish minute sermon. Uh, but namely, in chapter 16, Abram and Sarai, his wife, they either lose patience or they lose faith in God's promise, uh, and then they try to make it happen on their own. They do this through some vile, wicked, and unjust means, which quite honestly could have been the script to an episode of a soap opera. This stuff could be in, like, As the World Turns. Sarai convinces Abram, her husband, to sleep with her servant, Hagar, in this ungodly display of abuse so that Abram can have an heir when Abram listens. He gets Hagar pregnant, and then Sarai despises her. Even though her plan came to fruition, Sarah starts treating her harshly, it's ungodly, um, and she despises her and goes all out like mean girl status on her, um, treating her terribly. And we could see even the grace and mercy of God given to Hagar and Ishmael in that God tells Hagar, hey, I'm still going to bless you and your child, and I'm going to make a great nation come from them. They're not going to be the promised seed, the promised line, but I'm still going to take care of them, essentially. And God sees the injustice with which Hagar was treated and Ishmael was treated and still takes care of them. And let me just say this real quick. Something you need to keep in mind when you're reading historical narrative. There are multiple literary genres in scripture. One of them is historical narrative. Much of the Old Testament is historical narrative. Some of the New Testament, like the Gospels and the Book of Acts, are historical narrative, meaning they're stories narrating history, what happened. And something we need to pay attention to in the historical narrative is it is what did happen, not necessarily what should have happened. It's telling us what did happen. And so we don't take all of it as prescriptive. It, rather, it is descriptive. And so that's important because we can see people like Abram and Sarai doing some really terrible things. And we wrestle with, man, is that okay that they did that? Is it okay that they abused Hagar that way? No, it's sin. It's ungodly. And what we'll see throughout Scripture is that God over and over and over uses flawed sinners despite their sin for his greater purposes in a way that only he gets the glory and not these flawed sinners, which ought to be incredibly encouraging to us today because all of us are still flawed. All of us still make mistakes. And thankfully, like Abram, like Sarai, God doesn't see our sins, our mistakes, and go, ah, I'm done with you. I guess I'll have to do it another way or through someone else. See, the author's original intent in the account of Genesis 22 is not left in question. We get six words into chapter 22 to see the defined context of what we're about to read. It said, after these things, God tested Abraham. After that stuff that happened, 
we see God tested Abraham. So we see the context of chapter 22, the frame that we want to see it with, is a test. God's going to test Abraham. Let's read in Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. You could say only son because they had sent Ishmael out, essentially sending him out of the family. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father! And he said, Here I am. My son, he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So that both of them went on together. Okay, pause. Again, you hear me say this a lot. If you're a highlighter, underliner, highlight, underline that sentence, that phrase, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Let's continue reading in verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men And they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now, I don't know about you, but me as a father with daughters, I find this chapter and this narrative really 
difficult to process and swallow. The idea that God would require Abraham, that Abraham could get in a place in his mind where he had three days travel. In order to obey God, he had to travel three days to this land of Moriah with his his group, of, his posse, so to speak, his son with him the whole time, traveling three days where they're going to worship, knowing the whole time, these three days of walking with his son, talking with his son, laughing probably, conversing, all the things that they would have been doing, enjoying one another's company, the whole time mindful, the Lord's about to require me to offer my son as a sacrifice. He's got three days to wrestle through that, all these opportunities to stop and go, nah, I can't do this. But nonetheless, he persists, he, he continues forward, and he gets there, and he, and he tells these guys, hang on, stay at the bottom, Isaac and I, my son, will go up and worship. Still, I'm sure, wrestling, and there's something that I know the authors want us to recognize, the, the dynamic and the struggle that would have been present in this conversation with how many times the father and son relationship is cited in this passage. How many times it said, take your son, your only son, whom you love. How many times the, the boy said to his father, father, here I am, my son. This magnifying glass placed on this relationship to help us feel how insanely difficult this test would be. But if we flip to Hebrews chapter 11, we can see the author of Hebrews pointing out something that Abraham knew of the character and nature of God by this point that helped him move forward and obey in spite of these commands that must have been incredibly painful to move forward with. Hebrews chapter 11 says this, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. The author of Hebrews right here is pointing out to us that Abraham, in his heart and mind, went up that mountain with the knife, ready to plunge the knife, knowing that even if God had to raise him from the dead, that God would. Why? Because God had made so many promises to Abraham. So it wasn't only this incredibly difficult dynamic of father and son relationship that was the part of the turmoil. There would have been in Abraham's mind also all the promises of God throughout the last over 20 years that are being threatened by this command. For example, Genesis 12, 2-3, And I will make you a great nation, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That promise is threatened if Isaac is killed. Chapter 13, 15-16, For all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. That's a threat or that promise is threatened if Isaac is killed. Uh, chapter 15, verses 4 and 5 says, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring, b- offspring be. That promise is threatened at the death of Isaac. Chapter 16, and verse 10, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. 
That's a promise threatened if Isaac is killed. Chapter 17, verse 2, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. That's a promise threatened if Isaac is killed. Chapter 17, verses 5 and 8, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you to be God to you and to your offspring after you, and I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings. A bunch of promises right there that are threatened at a potential death of Isaac. Chapter 17, verse 16, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. A specific promise threatened by the death of specifically Isaac. Chapter 17, 20 and 21, as for Ishmael, I have heard you, but I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. In case you're thinking all the promises so far are general and could have been fulfilled through another, this one says, no, through Isaac. That's a promise that's threatened if Isaac is killed. Chapter 18, verse 18, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and that all the nations of the earth shall be blessed by him. A promise threatened. If Isaac is killed, uh, chapter 21 and 18, up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand for I will make him into a great nation. The quantity of promises that would fail at Isaac's death is not the only matter noteworthy from this list, but the significance of the promises, the everlasting covenant that God would make with Abraham and his descendants, God's people. All of that. The seed of the woman that would crush the serpent. The potential Messiah. God's redemptive plan. All of that does not come to pass if Isaac is killed. Which is why Abraham could go up the mountain in confidence in God's promises, God's faithfulness, and God's word. That even if Isaac had to be killed, God would raise him. What I think is important that we see here is that Abraham's faith in God was proven by his obedience to God. His faith in God was proven in this test by his obedience to God. Remember what the angel said when he said to him, Stop, Abraham, stop. Don't hurt the boy. For now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld your son, your only son whom you love. We see the fear of God in Abraham was proven in this test by his actions. Guys, for us today, God still tests his people to prove their faith in him, their trust in him, their belief in him and who he is and in his word, what he has spoken. And our obedience, our actions confirm or affirm, moreover, the faith that is in our heart. This is why James chapter 1 and verse 2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James is telling us that today in our lives, We still go through testing when we're going through suffering or trial or different things like that. He says, count it all joy because we see this as an opportunity to prove our faith in God. 
Not that we're earning anything. Not that we're earning his grace or earning his love or earning his forgiveness or earning his blessings. That's not grace. But that we have opportunity like Abraham. Remember, in the previous chapters, in chapter 15, it said Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So it's our faith in God that makes us righteous before him, believing in his word. But also, we see in James and in Hebrews that it was Abraham's faith and belief in God that caused him to act in obedience, going to Moriah, climbing up the mountain, and getting ready with that knife. Our faith in God is proven by our actions. I'll say that again. Our faith in God is proven by our actions. Our faith in God is proven by the way we live. So I want to look at one more verse in James to show this. James chapter 2, verses 17 through 19 says this. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works and show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person? That faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. Okay, I read more than the verses I said that I would read, but it went into Abraham there, proving and showing again. The Apostle James is telling us that if we have faith, it will be proven by our works. Not that we're trying to convince ourselves that we have faith, but if we have faith, it will be seen in the way that we live and the things that we do. And we right now, I've used this before, I'm sitting in this chair because I believe in gravity. And I have faith that this chair can hold me, that it's strong enough to hold my weight. I'm sitting because I have that faith. My actions are proving that I have faith in this chair. Abraham's actions proved that he had faith in God's ability to provide what he promised he would provide and that he would fulfill his promises. See, growth in our faith requires testing from God. If we're going to grow in our faith, we're going to have to be tested. This is why when you're thinking about what you're hearing in sermons and preaching and what you're reading in the Bible and even what you might be praying, if you're praying like, God, help me grow in my patience, get ready. You should pray and ask that, but get ready to be tested on that. Because it's an opportunity to grow. God's not going to just go, oh, okay, yep, I'll give you patience and never give you an opportunity to prove it. That God gives us opportunities to prove what he has done in us. And these tests uh, help us grow. Like James chapter 1, 2 said, um, count it joy, count it all joy, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. And when patience has had its perfect work, perfect work or steadfastness has had its perfect work, you'll be mature, lacking nothing. Not saying that we are in this life ever going to become perfect, but that we are continually having the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in us, whereby we continue to grow. And if we're not growing, we're regressing in our faith. And that's why we need to continue to be tested. And why we see in the life of Abraham, nine climbing tests in his life from chapters 12 through 22. Nine different tests that kept getting harder and harder and harder until the hardest one in chapter 22. So primarily, the first section of of concepts and truths that we want to take away from Genesis 22 is that God tests his people 
to prove their faith and to prove his faithfulness. God used this as an opportunity to prove that Abram did have faith. Abraham did have faith and to prove that he was faithful to provide what he had promised. Now, I'm really excited to get into the second angle of what I want you to see in Genesis chapter 22. Of course, this entire year, as we're trying to be mindful of the meta narrative of Scripture and the thread of Jesus Christ throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, Genesis to Revelation, it's all pointing to, leading up to Jesus, revealing Jesus, explaining Jesus. Throughout history, in literature, there are many literary devices, many we still use today, like acronyms and um, hyperbole and uh, haikus, uh, all sorts of different literary devices. There are some that are not used today. For example, um, one that's not really used as much is something called interchange, where two things are presented together showing their similarities in order to highlight their contrasts, the interchange between the two. That's actually something you can see in Genesis 21 and 22. I I don't have time to get into that. Today in Genesis 22, I want to talk to you about an ancient literary device called a chiasm, C-H-I-A-S-M. A chiasm is an ancient literary device that authors would use to build ascending points that would climax to the main point and descend mirroring those ascending points. What? We're getting really nerdy today. Let's put on our glasses. Here we go. Okay, that's lame. I have an example for you on official Word of Grace letterhead. Let me give you an example of a chiasm. Okay, here we go. Point A, Stephen turned on the Cowboys game. Yikes, you see where this is going. B, ascending, Stephen hoped the Cowboys would win. C, the Cowboys played poorly and choked. Shocker. D, Stephen was foolish for hoping in the Cowboys. C, descending. We were ascending, and now we're descending. C, mirroring the C above. The cowboys will play no further. B again, Stephen hopes, or Stephen's hopes were disappointed. And finally, descending back to the mirrored A, Stephen turned off the game. Now notice a few things about this chiasm. You have A and A, and they mirror each other. Stephen turned, the cowboys, or turned on the cowboys game. Stephen turned off the cowboys game. B and B, ascending and descending. Stephen hoped the Cowboys would win. B, Stephen's hopes were disappointed. C, the Cowboys played poorly and choked. C, the Cowboys will play no further. And then D, this one in the middle all by itself. Stephen was foolish for hoping the Cowboys would win. It's true. I was foolish for placing my hope in the Cowboys because they have been crushing my hopes for over a quarter of a century. I'm not bitter. Anyways, the point is, and the thing that you need to know about chiasms with the way that they ascend and descend to and from that one climactic point is that the author, when employing a chiasm, is trying to say this point, this climactic one, D here, Stephen was foolish for placing his hopes in the cowboys. That's the main point of that story of the chiasm. And many biblical scholars have pointed out and noted that Genesis chapter 22 has movements of chiasm within its structure. Watch this. If we look back at Genesis chapter 22, there's a few phrases that you would have noticed 
being repeated multiple times throughout um, <clears throat> that chapter. Notice in chapter 22, verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. That phrase, here I am. Do you remember seeing that anywhere else in the chapter? Yeah, let's look. If we go over to verse 7. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am. Abraham said the exact same phrase again. And if we fast forward down to verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. The, um, the trained student would notice the same phrases being employed as chiastic movements to heighten our awareness that there's more going on than meets the eye here. That the author wants us to see that there is a main point to the story. And so each of these three movements, chiastic movements, are all initiated with Abraham saying, here I am. And they're all concluded with another phrase. Watch this. If we go back and we look... Um, for verse 6. Remember the first one started with God calling to Abraham and him saying, here I am. Verse 6 closes the first movement of the chiasm like this. Verse 6, and Abraham took the the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took it in his hand, the fire and the knife. So they both of them, so they went both of them together. So they went both of them together. Now, look at verse uh, we'll, we'll keep reading in verses 7 and 8. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Watch this. So they went both of them together. That same phrase from earlier, they went both of them together, showing here's the closing of this section of the chiasm. And then finally, if we fast forward way down to verse 19, it says, So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together. So we have a few cues showing beginnings and endings of the chiastic structures. Man, Stephen, this is getting really nerdy and really academic. I get it. But what do I want you to see? You remember in the Cowboys, that silly chiasm that I built to show you that the main point was that it was foolish for me to place hope in the Cowboys? That's funny. I get it. The main point, the climax of this three-part chiasm is in verse 8. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. The author of Genesis wanted us to see the main point of this whole story is that God will provide for himself a lamb for the sacrifice. Guys, if you cannot see the way that this is pointing to Jesus, consider Isaac went up the mountain with the wood on his back upon which he would be sacrificed. We fast forward and we see Jesus going up the hill Golgotha, Calvary, with the cross, the wood on his back upon which he would be sacrificed. Did you notice all the verbal cues in this chapter? How many times it said, your son, your only son, whom you love. 
And how many times in the New Testament, in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever would believe in him would perish, or would not perish, but have eternal life. And in Romans, where the Apostle Paul said, God who did not spare his only son, will he not also now freely give us all things? The parallels here showing us Jesus. And I'm reminded now of John chapter 1, where John the Baptist sees Jesus approaching in the distance. And what does John say? He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Do you see this thread of the meta narrative of Scripture? Whether or not Abraham, when he told this story to his descendants through oral tradition, whether he was aware that this was shadow pointing forward to Jesus or not, I don't know, but God, the Holy Spirit, inspired them to write it this way. He inspired them to use this mechanism called chiasm, this chiastic structure, to make sure that we could see the main point of this story is that God will provide for himself a lamb for the sacrifice. And he used the whole Old Testament to show no, no matter what, no matter how many times we failed and all these sacrifices that we tried to offer to atone for our sin, the blood of bulls and goats and rams, Hebrew tells us, they were never really good enough. But Jesus, his blood, the perfect blood, was the sacrifice for our sin once and for all. That lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the lamb that God provided for himself for the sacrifice. Man, the wonder and awe that we should have at the magnificent wisdom of God and the sovereign orchestration of what God puts in his word to show us from beginning to end. He had a plan. These are the types of things that make me believe all the more in the inspiration of scripture. These are the things that make me believe all the more in God and the God of the Bible. The way that this all works together, Genesis to Revelation, this thread of Scripture. It's the stuff that makes me go, yeah, I believe it. Look at this. Look at the way this works. So what do we see from this finally? It's that God will provide in his own time, in his own way, for his own glory. Abraham is commendable in the story. But God is the one who provides miraculously. And each of us, when we come to faith in Christ, uh, what a wonderful thing. But ultimately, God is the one who provided for himself the payment that we couldn't because all of our efforts were tainted, were inadequate, insufficient. And God has provided for himself the lamb for the sacrifice against all personal interest and emotion, against all the perceived threats to God's plan, Abraham would pass his final test in Genesis 22. Jesus, against all his personal interests, submitted to the Father's will and passed his most difficult test, his final test, by saying, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And he truly did lay his life down for us. May we display that same faithful readiness modeled by Abraham, 
the flawed man who passed that test and modeled greater by our perfect Savior, Jesus Christ, who passed his more difficult test. May we pass our tests the same way by saying, not my will, but yours be done. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you love us enough to not let us just sit still and become stagnant in our faith and in our relationship with you. But you want to call us higher. You want us to grow. You want us to mature. You want us to bear fruit. And that requires pruning. That requires testing. That requires being rubbed against the grain. God, I ask that each of us, as we go through various tests in our lives, that you would help us remember that you are faithful. No matter what we're facing, no matter how dark it may seem, no matter how impossible it may seem, that you are faithful to your word and that we can trust in you. And you have proven faithful by offering and providing for yourself the payment for our sins. And we thank you for that, Lord. And I pray and ask if there's anyone in this room today or anyone online that doesn't know you, that by your Holy Spirit you would open their eyes to see and believe the truth, that you would save them and change them, bring them to repentance and sincere, genuine faith. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys.